it's Mike from Political Theory and um, other stuff here to do some, what do they call it, house cleaning, set the table, lay some groundwork for this episode you're about to hear. But before we get to that, I just wanted to let you know that we weren't super thrilled about the audio quality, as is the case with all preceding episodes as well. But this audio quality in especially had some, some echoes in it that we weren't thrilled about. However, the content was so excellent, just like mind-blowingly excellent, especially the impromptu ad-lib stuff that there was no way we could have tried to record it, but it just wouldn't have been the same. Secondly, I left in a section, or we left in a section uh, and I'll just call it the word of the day section. It is kind of rambly and odd, but it's important because, you know, this podcast is about us learning and us learning together and us being transparent about the fact that we don't know a lot of stuff and that we're here to learn. I think there is a tendency in the internet leftist sphere to try to make it seem as though you know everything and have known everything since the dawn of time and we're here to to fuck that shit up also then this ties in with what i was just talking about but uh i read aloud uh, you will notice that i read aloud in all of our episodes or i will be for the foreseeable future and i do minimal edits to those reading aloud sessions I know that it's painful to hear me read aloud, but the point of me doing that is to show everyone else out there that grew up with learning disabilities. Grew up with learning disabilities makes it sound like I, once puberty hit, they like sloughed off. For all of those people that have learning disabilities, that have trouble with reading, let alone reading aloud, I want people to see like, yeah, you can still read theory. And yeah, you can still read theory aloud. It can be painful. It can be painful for you and others, but you can do it and it's worth doing. And uh, for all of, the, of you out there that um, just, you know, it's like nails on a chalkboard. Just remember, it was nails on the, a chalkboard for me while reading. Like I could just, I'm like, oh, I'm fucking this up. I'm fucking this up. And then on top of that, I had to fucking edit it. So it was a nightmare two times. You know, if you want to skip through what I have to read or my reading sections, more power to you. We make it pretty clear where we're at throughout the the text, so you can you can just read those parts for yourself. Anyhow, those were the main things I wanted to to cover. the The main um, items that uh, uh, needed the main the main um, flatware, let's say, that needed to be put on the table. And, um, and that, that'll be it, or that is it. Uh, thank you all very much, and I hope that you enjoy the episode. Record. All right, we are back. Uh, we are doing episode two or part two for chapter one of Capitalist Realism, 
We're at the bottom of page five. Paul, do you want to take it away? Yes, sir. <clears throat> In their account of capitalism, surely the most impressive since Marx's, Deleuze and Guattari describe capitalism as a kind of dark potentiality which haunted all previous social systems. Capital, they argue, is the unnameable thing, the abomination which primitive and feudal societies warded off in advance. When it actually arrives, capitalism brings with it a massive desacralization of culture. It is a system which is no longer governed by any transcendent law. On the contrary, it dismantles all such codes, only to reinstall them on an ad hoc basis. of capitalism are not fixed by fiat, but defined and redefined pragmatically and improvisationally. This makes capitalism very much like the thing in John Carpenter's film of the same name, a monstrous, infinitely plastic entity capable of metabolizing and absorbing anything with which it comes into contact. Capital, Deleuze and Guattari say, is a motley painting of everything that ever was, a strange hybrid of the ultra-modern and the archaic. In the years since Deleuze and Guattari wrote the two volumes of their Capitalism and Schizophrenia, it has seemed as if the deterioration <laughs> has seemed as if the deterioratorializing holy shit uh, the deterioration impulses of capitalism have been confined to finance, leaving culture presided over by the forces motherfucker of retail. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, the words I believe are deterritorializing impulses of capitalism have been confined to financing, leaving culture presided over by the forces of re-territorialization. Yes. I, I, I don't think, uh, I think Google Docs would say that's not a real word. Yeah. Uh, I think um, it would give me the red squiggle on that. Is that uh, I was trying to first make it be about like the word deteriorate. Uh, understanding that it's referring to territory, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. uh, that really threw me a fucking curve. Jesus. Okay. I haven't read Capitalism and Schizophrenia, and I would like to. But when they talk about... Um, God damn it. When they say... Uh, oh, when they say that the few, uh, feudal societies warded off in advance, I would love to know more about what they what they mean by that, like how that happens. Like with like the concept of, this is my guess. I've not read this book, uh, but I would guess that they're talking like that concept of like honor and maybe natural right to be uh, royalty and things like that. Uh, Cause I definitely remember in history um, that conflict between the merchant class and the Royal class um, where, you know, just having money wasn't enough to warrant your spot in society. Right. Uh, kind of my guess that you can't like buy um your way into the elites it's okay. more, uh god or natural, blood. Right? yeah yeah uh i that could be totally off but that would be um what my bet is i just do want to say that you know i i really do agree with um that sentiment that capitalism just comes in and kind of crumbles culture uh oh, yeah yeah well. for sure um we've yeah. talked about it in previous episodes i think that it's like good luck defining american culture like, yeah so a hodgepodge of like what fucking shit you're into buying in an area. Like the South is defined by Yeti coolers uh, and fucking Salt Life fishing stickers. Uh, and the West is more of like a Hurley surf. Well, that's well, but that's, that's a joke. I mean, yeah, right, right, right. Super, no, no, super simplifying, but right, uh, right, right. But I would say it doesn't, 
necessarily like destroy culture as much as it just commodifies it. It's more about the commodification of culture. And I would say that, not that I know a lot about uh, like anthropology or whatever, but I would say that when you talk about the the South and the West, that regions have always impacted culture, you know? Yeah. And in such a wide space, of course, the cultures are going to be different. It's, it's right. It's just so easy to buy a culture, I guess. Is right. My, like yeah. I could move to California and buy all the California gear I would need to, to fit in or in Colorado, if I've got my Patagonia jacket and yep. fucking Morel boots, I'm good to go. You know? Right. Yeah. It's um, there is definitely a very much, uh, like you said, a commodification component um, to uh, regional American culture. Yeah, totally. Totally. All right. So uh, next paragraph, this malaise, the feeling that there is nothing new is itself nothing new, of course. We find ourselves at the notorious end of history, trumpeted by Francis Fukuyama after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Fukuyama's thesis that history has climaxed with liberal capitalism may have been widely derided, but it is accepted, even assumed, at the level of cultural unconsciousness. It should be remembered, though, that even when Fukuyama advanced it, the the idea that history had reached a terminal breach or beach, sorry, terminal beach was not merely uh, triumphalist. Fukuyama warned that his radiant city would be haunted, uh, but he thought it, its specters would be Nietzschean rather than Marxian. Some of, Nietzsche, some of Nietzsche's most precedent pages are those in which he describes the oversaturization of an age with history. It leads an age into a dangerous mood of irony in regard to itself, he wrote in Untimely Meditations, and subsequently into the even more dangerous mood of cynicism, in which a cosmopolitan fingering, a detached spectoralism, replaces engagement and involvement. This is the condition of Nietzsche's last man, who has seen everything, but is but is decadently enfeebled precisely by this excess of self in parentheses awareness. Damn dude. Just on a side note, uh, the term cosmopolitan fingering just really inspires like blase sex acts in a, a really yes. nice outfit. <laughs> just like, totally, totally, totally. Um, uh, I just want to chime in there because this honestly gave me a new perspective. Not that I'm uh, an expert on Fukuyama, uh, but when I was presented with that concept, you know, I was in college in a fairly near post 9-11 era. Uh, and the professor who pre presented it to me was like, look at this fucking joke. This dude thought conflict was over. Yeah. Could have told him about the Middle East, you know, shit like that. And now rereading it, I almost agree with him in the sense that, and I think this covers it a little more in the future, but in this, uh, the book, there is no conflict of ideals anymore. You know, there was a time period where capitalism wasn't a homogenous uh, way of life throughout the world. Um, and when we were in conflict with the USSR, it wasn't just over resources. It wasn't over territory. It was over a, a literal way of life it was a huge part of the conflict. And um, I guess I do have um, some agreements with Fukuyama uh, that that 
those conflicts seem to have disappeared for uh, maybe not forever, but for an extremely long period of time where we just have capitalism uh, is what runs everything. Uh, and now we fight about way other, you know, we just fight over resources uh, or political power um, within the confinements of capitalism, um, which is kind of fucking crazy if you think about it. Absolutely. You know, the other thing that's weird, though, is that if our imagination is so limited that we can't think of anything beyond capitalism, right, then I don't quite understand why the specters that haunt us are Marxian rather than Nietzschean. You would think that, Uh, or go ahead. My guess would just be that, like, yeah, I don't understand, because I do agree that our specters are more Nietzschean uh, than Marxian because we, to me, Nietzsche kind of represents more of the capitalists, like nothing fucking matters. Just get as much money as you can. The, out of- the nihilism and the, right. the individualism, the rugged yes. individualist, you know? Yeah. Um, and Marxian, but maybe, 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 maybe what they're happen. saying is he thought Marxism would win and it would be haunted by Nietzschean concepts. But no, that doesn't make sense because I know Fukuyama was well aware that capitalism won that conflict. So. Yeah. That's what his thesis was. Maybe yeah. it's not that, that the people are conscious of 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 Marx, but maybe the um, maybe the contradictions of capitalism that Marx brought up are what is haunting us. If that makes sense, yeah. like the yeah. the Marxian the the contradictions that Marx pointed out, which are you know Marxian ideas, are the things that are they're haunting us. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. It does. It okay. Does. That, that I feel, I feel like that makes sense to me. Uh, do you want to hit up the next one? Sure. Fukuyama's position is in some ways a mirror image of Frederick Jameson's. Jameson famously claimed that postmodernism is the cultural logic of late. He argued that the failure of the future was constitutive of a postmodern cultural scene, which, as he correctly prophesied, would become dominated by pastiche and revivalism. Given that Jameson has made a convincing case for the relationship between postmodern culture and certain tendencies in consumer, or in parentheses, or post-Fordist capitalism, it could appear that there is no need for the concept of capitalist realism at all. In some ways, this is true. What I'm calling capitalist realism can be subsumed under the rubric of postmodernism as theorized by Jameson. Yet, despite Jameson's heroic work of clarification, Postmodernism remains a hugely contested term, its meanings appropriately but unhelpfully unsettled and multiple. More importantly, I'd want to argue that some of the processes which Jameson described and analyzed have now become so aggravated and chronic that they have gone through a change in kind. I just want to stop there to say that a lot of this shit is pretty over my head uh, just due to my lack of knowledge uh, of Jameson. Mm-hmm. I understand the concept of what they're referring to. Uh, but for me to just read postmodernism and have like a solid definition of what he's referring to, thankfully he goes more into this in this next like page and a half. Yeah, to be honest, I just don't have a super uh, lot to add to this due to my own ignorance. No, I, I just feel like it's pretty self-explanatory too. Yeah. You know, he yeah. just says like, hey, fucking uh, Fukuyama and, and Jameson were mirror images. The reason why I'm not, you know, using the phrase postmodernism is because kind of like uh, it has baggage and because it um, and because some of these issues have been aggravated to the point where I feel like they have kind of altered, you know. Right. And thankfully, Fisher hits us up real quick with 
ultimately, there are three reasons that I prefer the term capitalist realism to postmodernism. So that's pretty tight of him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you want me to just read yeah, through? If you don't mind. Yep. Yeah, not at all. So uh, once again, ultimately, there are three reasons that I prefer the term capitalist realism to postmodernism. In the 1980s, when Jameson first advanced his thesis about postmodernism, there were still, in name at least, political alternatives to capitalism. What we are dealing with now, however, is a deeper, far more pervasive sense of exhaustion, of cultural and political sterility. In the 80s, really existing socialism still persisted, albeit in its final phase of collapse. In Britain, the fault lines of class antagonism were fully exposed in an event like the miners' strikes of 1984 through 85, and the defeat of the miners was an important moment in the development of capitalist realism, at least as significant in its symbolic dimension as in its practical effects. The closure of pits was defended precisely on the grounds that keeping them open was not economically realistic, and the miners were cast in the role of the last actors in a doomed proletarian romance. The 80s were the period when capitalist realism was fought for and established, when Margaret Thatcher's doctrine that there is no alternative, as succinct a slogan of capitalist realism as you could hope for, became a brutally self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, so that is kind of what we were talking about prior to this. Um, secondly, postmodernism involved some relationship to modernism. Jameson's work on postmodernism began with an interrogation of the idea cherished by the likes of Adorno, that modernism possessed revolutionary potentials by virtue of its formal innovations alone. What Jameson saw happening instead was the incorporation of modernist motifs into popular culture. In parentheses, suddenly, for example, surrealist techniques would appear in advertising. At the same time as particular modernist forms were absorbed and commodified, modernism's credos, its supposed belief in elitism and its monological top-down model of culture, were challenged and rejected in the name of difference, diversity, and multiplicity. Capitalist realism no longer stages this kind of confrontation with modernism. On the contrary, it takes the vanquishing of modernism for granted. Modernism is now something that can periodically return, but only has a frozen aesthetic style, never has an ideal for living. Uh, which, you know, I, we, I think we extensively talked about just the commodification of culture, and, um, you know, there is no combating that people just care about how much something is worth via uh, its monetary worth uh, via its cultural impact uh, or, uh, you know, I don't know how much more we even talk about that. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and then thirdly, a whole generation has passed since the collapse of the Berlin Wall. In the 1960s and 70s, capitalism had to face the problem of how to contain and absorb energies from outside. It now, in fact, has the opposite problem. Having all too successfully incorporated externality, how can it function without an outside it can colonize and appropriate? For most people under 20 in Europe and North America, the lack of alternatives to capitalism is no longer even an issue. Capitalism seamlessly occupies the horizons of the thinkable. Jameson used to report in horror about the ways that capitalism has seeped into the very unconscious. Now, the fact that capitalism has colonized the dreaming life of the population is so taken for granted that it is no longer worthy of comment. Yeah. Fucking. I, I don't know what to add to that. Uh, it's yeah. it's um, outside of being extremely depressing for me personally. Um, I don't, I, I don't see a counter to that in my scope of reality. I wish that I did. I wish I could say this was like some sort of crazy exaggeration, but 
I am unaware of anything that goes in the face of, of what was just presented. Yeah, which is why he he's using capitalist realism rather than postmodernism, and I I feel like um, those reasons are are justified. You you want me to uh, take it from there? Yeah, yeah. Okay, it would be dangerous and misleading to imagine that the near past was uh, was some pre lap. What is this word? Prelapsarian. Yeah, well, can we I look think that that's up? A porn term. I yeah, seriously. Porn. Yeah, it's uh. It's like when you're it's right you're, before you prolapse. Yeah, uh, I was just gonna say it's, it's a prelapse. Yeah, the what the hell is this prelapsing? Yep, characteristic of the time before the fall of man. Oh, innocent and unspoiled. That is the word of the day. Prelapsarian. Okay, so right. um, we're clearly uh, and I don't even know like when the fall of man was. Honestly, I want to look yeah. that up real quick here fall of man i so the fall of man i think was uh the eating of the apple yeah 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 totally and that was uh, a a funny meme the other day i saw where some dude was like talking about weed and he's like making weed illegal is like saying god was wrong and then somebody's comment was like uh actually the first thing god did was make a plant illegal so uh yeah seriously good point good point so don't do drugs kids All right. uh, Let me do this again. Uh, It would be dangerous and misleading to imagine that the near past was some prelapsarian state rife with political potentials. So it's all as well to remember the role that commodification played in the production of culture throughout the 20th century. Yet the old struggle between uh, detourment, is that right? Uh, It's italicized. Um, so I don't know if you moved your hands enough when you said it, but besides, okay, yeah. okay, determinant and re um, and recuperation uh, between subversion and incorporation seems to have been played out. What we are dealing with now it is not the incorporation of materials that previously seemed to possess subversive potentials, but instead their pre-corporation, the preemptive formatting and shaping of desires, aspirations and hopes by capitalist culture. Witness, for instance, the establishment of settled alternative or independent cultural zones, which endlessly repeat older gestures of rebellion and contestation as if for the first time alternative well, my dad will tell you all about that by the way uh, really oh anything i ever did to rebel as a young man my dad would be like ah that reminds me of when i did the exact same shit at your age and i'd be like oh thanks dad sorry no no you're oh. good alternative and independent don't d- designate something outside mainstream culture rather they are styles in fact the dominant styles within the mainstream no one embodied and struggled with this deadlock more than kurt cobain and nirvana in his dreadful lassitude and object objectless rage cobain seemed to give wearied vo- wearied voice to the despondency of the generation that had come o- after history 
whose every move was anticipated, tracked, bought, and sold before it had even happened. Cobain I'm going to interrupt real quick, just with like a factoid that I know. Yeah. Uh, that was such a struggle for Kurt Cobain. Their first mainstream album that like sold a shit ton of copies was uh, an album called Nevermind. And I would say as far as like large, well-known bands, the tonal change between Nevermind and his next album In Utero is like a shocking fucking change. And he was repeatedly quoted saying that he made that change in hopes of like losing his fan base. Like he was mm. so uh, upset with the mainstream level he reached that, you know, I mean, he still enjoyed the music. He didn't intentionally make shitty music, but he did intentionally change everything about it in hopes that they would uh, lose popularity and go back into kind of more of an incognito mode as a band. Uh, it didn't work in utero, sold more copies. Just what a weird fucking struggle to be in. It's like, fuck, yeah. famous. I'm doing what I love, so I don't want to stop that, but I don't want to be famous while doing it. Mm -hmm. And his like struggle to be less famous made him fucking more famous. Right. Uh, because we commodify angst and fucking, which is just so sad. Cobain knew that he was just another piece of a uh, spectacle and nothing runs better on MTV than a protest against MTV. Knew that his every move was a cliche scripted in advance. Knew that even realizing it is a cliche. The impasse that paralyzed Cobain is pre precisely the one that Jameson described. Like postmodern culture in general, Cobain found himself in a world in which stylistic innovation is no longer possible, where all that is left is to intimidate, or imitate. sorry, yeah, um, all that is left is to imitate dead styles, to speak through the masks, the masks, and with the voices of the styles in the imaginary museum. I'm going to interrupt again, um, just because th this whole shit kind of terrifies me. Uh, and I don't know if we really touched on it precisely, um, but just the concept, like, I think in part, this commodification of culture was perhaps um, either intentional or unintentionally a response to kind of what happened in the 60s in the, uh, in the 60s of America, like the protests and all that shit about Vietnam, civil rights, obviously, um, you know, those protests literally were able to change things and i think like i said whether it was intentional or not commodifying them really just fucking took the steam out of all of that shit to have uh hippie culture and shit just for sale at your corner store um made it all just a lot more comical and not serious like how do you fucking take anything seriously that you can fucking you know buy amazon package or some shit um it really uh it's scary because you know there is no way to protest if protest is already an existing culture that can be pre-mocked uh, on a fucking nightly news program or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and that's yeah. really sad. Um, and it's like when people are like, well, why aren't you out there protesting? I think this is an answer. It's like, well, because the shit has been kind of nullified um, by mm -hmm. the vacation of rebellion. Yeah, uh, for sure. Where the fuck was I? Uh, here, even success. Okay. Here, even success meant failure, since to succeed would only mean that you were the new meat on which the system could feed. But the high existential angst of Nirvana and Cobain belongs to an older moment. What succeeded them was a pastiche rock, which reproduced the forms of the past without anxiety. Cobain's death confirmed 
the defeat and incorporation of Rock's utopian and Promethean amb ambitions. When he died, uh, Rock was already being eclipsed by hip-hop, whose global success was pre presupposed just the kind of preoccupation by capital, which I alluded to above. For much hip-hop, any naive hope that youth culture could change anything has been replaced by the hard-headed embracing of a br brutality-reductive version of reality. In hip-hop, Simon Reynolds pointed out in a 1996 essay in The Wire magazine, uh, or in, sorry, uh, out in a 1996 essay in The Wire magazine. Real has two meanings. First, it means authentic, uncompromised music that refuses to sell out to the music industry and soften its message for crossover. Real also signifies that the music reflects a reality constituted by late capitalist economic instability institutionalized racism and increased surveillance and harassment of youth by the police. Real means the death of the social. It means cooperations or corporations who respond to increased profits, not by raising pay or improving benefits, but by downsizing the lay, the laying off the permanent workforce in order to create a floating employment pool of part-time and freelance workers without benefits or job security. Um, do so we want crazy? Do we uh, have, just, yeah. just to talk about it a little, like I even think it's gotten more dystopian in the hip hop realm since 96 uh, when this essay was written. Um, you know, I mean, in 96, I would say like, I don't know what the real definition is, but you would call it like gangster rap was still pretty um, out there, like was still pretty dominant, but it was more like the Dr. Dre, NWA. Um, you know, there was a hint, not a hint. It all started with a huge kind of like fuck you to society, you know, like literally fuck the police, um, like an actual societal statement. Um, and not to say that that kind of music doesn't exist anymore, but I feel like rap uh, has been commodified to, and maybe is getting out of that at this stage. Uh, but for much of the late 90s, at least through, you know, like 2015, rap became so focused on material goods, uh, on things that you can obtain with money, um, as opposed to like, and maybe that's a social commentary in itself, uh, but it doesn't seem to be as much of a, a protestation as an embracement of like, fuck, get this money, uh, and then you can get bitches and gold and, you know, all that sort of shit, instead of like, dude, fuck this system that has fucked us. Um, mm -hmm. You know, once again, a commodification taking uh any sense of um individualism out of the fucking game um, yeah well and like uh fisher said and it's a hard-headed embracing of a brutally reductive version mm -hmm. of reality you know and it's you know i do want to say like it, it sounds like i'm shitting all over music these days uh it's a weird paradox for me because um while mainstream music i think is the most uh, manufactured it's probably ever been uh, I don't know the statistic but the amount of producers that's like four producers make up like 70% of the billboard top 10 for the last 15 years or some shit like that once again not exact statistics but it's pretty mind-blowing uh, but on the other hand it's so easy to fucking make your own album these days 
um, that the amount of like actually accessible independent music has just fucking uh, almost gotten so large that it's hard to navigate. So it's kind of a weird paradox for me. Uh, yeah. that it's both at the stage where it's most controlled um, by corporations on the large scale, um, but that there's almost no control. People can self-produce pretty impressive shit these days, which is whatever, a tangent, sorry. No, no, you're good. Um, did you want to wrap it up or sure. do you want me to keep sure. going? Okay. Yeah, we'll just wrap it up. In the end, it was precisely hip hop's performance of this first version of the reel, the uncompromising that enabled its easy absorption into the second, the reality of late capitalist economic instability, where such authenticity has proven highly marketable. <clears throat> Gangster rap neither merely reflects pre-existing social conditions, as many of its advocates claim, nor does it simply cause those conditions, as its critics argue. Rather, the circuit whereby hip-hop and the late capitalist social field feed into each other is one of the means by which capitalist realism transforms itself into a kind of anti-mythical myth. The affinity between hip-hop and gangster movies such as Scarface, The Godfather films, Reservoir Dogs, Goodfellas, and Pulp Fiction arises from their common claim to have stripped the world of the sentimental illusions and seen it for what it really is, a Hobbesian war of all against all, a system of perpetual exploitation and generalized criminality. In hip-hop, Reynolds writes, to get real is to confront a state of nature where dog eats dog, where you're either a winner or a loser, and where most will be losers. The same neo-noir worldview can be found in the comic books of Frank Miller and in the novels of James Elroy. There is a kind of machismo of demythologization in Miller and Elroy's works. They pose as unflinching observers who refuse to prettify the world so that it can be fitted into the supposedly simple ethical binaries of the superhero comic and the traditional crime novel. The realism here is somehow underscored rather than undercut by their fixation on the luridly banal or banal. Even though the hyperbolic insistence on cruelty, betrayal, and savagery in both writers quickly becomes pantomimic. In his pitch blackness, Mike Davis wrote of Elroy in 1992, there is no light left to cast shadows and evil becomes a forensic banality. The result feels very much like the actual moral texture of the Reagan-Bush era, a super saturation of corruption that fails any longer to outrage or even interest. Yet this very desensitization serves a function for capitalist realism. Davis hypo hypothesized that the role of L.A. Noir may have been to endorse the emergence of Homo Reganus. Uh, that's pretty fucking funny, actually. <laughs> like, just uh, the old Homo Reganus reference. I can say with my historical knowledge, I put it maybe a little further back to Nixon, but the amount of scandal that a president would have to involve, uh, the amount of scandal a Republican president would have to involve themselves in to shock the voter base. Uh, I don't know if we've hit that limit yet. Like, I don't know how you can be more corrupt and shitty than Reagan and Iran-Contra or the Bush-Cheney administration, you know, all of their post-9-11 nonsense. Uh, and then it seems like, obviously, um, maybe if only in rhetoric alone, that Trump is like going for new heights of just blatant out there corruption. Nobody gives a shit about it's and I'd say nobody like just like it's his voter base. Um, but yeah, I mean, even the opposition to him is no longer shocked by anything that Trump does, including myself. I can't remember the last time where I was like, oh, I can't believe Trump would do that. Uh, because at this point, I just buy that fucking he would do anything. If I woke up tomorrow and read an article where like, uh, instead of firing Fauci, Trump has instead agreed to shit down his throat 
and proving his loyalty. And I would just be like, yeah, that sounds like a pretty standard thing for this administration. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Which we're good at understanding because that shit was commodified 20 years ago. Or more, far more. Yeah. Actually. more yeah. I mean, like yeah, 20 years ago, right? it was 2000. Sorry. Right. That's yeah, me being I know, old. Dude. I uh, know. I know. I'm always thinking like it's 1990, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But um, what's yeah. weird to me as a tangent is that classic rock stations have not updated uh, to featuring like music that is now in the age bracket that it was when I was a kid. It's right. Just like. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, maybe like Led Zeppelin should be on the oldies yeah. station now. Right. Um, but yes. instead it's like classic rock still. But I mean, I, I think, but that's a whole nother thing. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's probably just a genre classification. So. Right. Yeah. Totally. So yeah, I, I, uh, chapter wraps up with th- this idea of um, these these parts of culture, both um, being inspired by capitalist realism and then perpetuating capitalist realism, and yeah. that is one of the things that makes capitalist realism <laughs> so. Uh, unique and so um, dangerous is its ability to and and alluring like this is the first part where it's like I kind of there are parts of me that appreciate that style of like being real if you will like as depressing it is and how now that it's just like an accepted fact of reality um, but I don't I don't mind that we now accept that things are shittier you know I mean there was uh, and I keep in mind, this is from a historical perspective, so I don't know what it was like at the time. Um, but it seemed, you know, through World War II, it was so much easier to frame things in a, at least for a personal sense, like a good versus evil struggle. Um, and now, like today, you know, everything I look at is just like, well, that's evil. Just fucking around with evil over there, if you will. Sorry to use such vague terms, but uh, I guess more accurately, like, well, yeah, of course they're corrupt. They're corrupt fucking everywhere sort of deal. Yeah. Uh, and like... Yeah, I don't know if it was ever that much different than that. Um, so exposing it's cool. I guess what's really depressing is that nobody gave a shit. That it's just like, oh yeah, well that's definitely how it is, and it will always be. Is that we'll just be shitty. So embrace it or whatever. Um, well, next time we'll be starting on chapter two, and yes. which is titled uh, "What if you held a protest and everyone came." That's going to be uh, page 12. Messy. Pretty messy. Fuck it. Once again, just thank you for uh, learning shit with us. Uh, We appreciate it. Yep. Uh, It's always a blast. It is. Uh, Yeah. Uh, We're working on getting sponsorships. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. uh, (laughs) More on that to come. Yeah. More on that to come for sure. Y'all have a a good day or evening or what the fuck ever. And we'll see you next time. All right, that wraps up chapter one of Capitalist Realism. Thank you for joining Paul and I on this wonderful journey. Once again, sorry about the audio. But then again, if you are a frequent flyer with us here at Political Theory and um, other stuff, you know, this is kind of par for the course. But like I said, I think it is a little bit more egregious than normal. I hope you all enjoyed the word of the day. I hope you caught the word of the day. 
like I said before, I'm sorry if my my reading sections are, are too much for you. If we get a lot of feedback from people that say, you know, we get what you're trying to do, but it is seriously way too obnoxious, then I'll stop. Or maybe at first what I'll probably do is try to start editing it and then if it's still a problem, then, then I'll cut it out. But like I said, I just really, so much of, of my issues with reading aloud or so much of my shame was just feeling like I was alone. And I think it would have been cool younger when I was younger to hear people that struggle reading aloud, reading aloud. Yeah. That's it. Uh, I hope uh, you'll join us for for chapter two of Capitalist Realism. Uh, thank you.